0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Horror Weekly, bad but interesting horror movies. Some horror movies, like The Thing or Ken Russell's The Devils, are just great, they're masterpieces. Some horror movies, like The Poltergeist Remake or Fear.com or The Psycho Remake, are just bad, and not even like fun bad, just bland and boring bad. Luckily, there are a lot of so-bad-they're-good movies as well, like Birdemic, Shock and Terror, or The Happening, that are at least so much fun to watch and just have that revelatory experience every 90 seconds of what is happening, (laughs) how did this get made, what were they thinking? But today I want to explore a different, and I think pretty small, category that I'm going to call bad but interesting horror movies. And when I say interesting, I mean something super special buried inside. Something maybe even unique or singular in the movie that almost no other horror movie or movie in general does. These are going to be movies that fail as entertainment or don't deliver on nearly anything a horror fan, at least, would ask from a genre film, but have that something special inside of them that makes them worth a watch and worth consideration. And let's be clear here. Bad is a subjective term. So this is my opinion on a lot of these. And it's subjective not just for the audience, right? It's also subjective for... The creators, like Stephen King, considers Maximum Overdrive a bad movie. I suspect a lot of you listening right now do not think of Maximum Overdrive as a bad movie. What he means by bad is probably in terms of the craft of filmmaking or what he imagined could have been in that movie versus what ended up on the screen. But that's going to be a big part of what we're going to try to uncover here. What does the horror audience ask of their films? Some of the movies we're going to talk about, I think, might even be pretty successful as movies, just not as horror movies. So let's get some ground rules out of the way. The audience asks for a few basic things from a horror movie as far as I'm concerned they ask for the movie to be scary. (laughs) They ask for the movie to be surprising in some way. They ask for it to be entertaining and or fun. And they ask for it to be clever and or memorable. So I came up with kind of an anagram to remember this. And the anagram is mess. (laughs) So horror fans, as for the premise of what we're going to be talking about today, want their horror movies to be a mess. That's, M, memorable, E, entertaining, S, surprising, and second S, scary. The movie you make could fail in a lot of other ways, but if it really nails those four, or at least most of those four, chances are that movie is going to be embraced by horror fandom. So let's apply that new scale backwards. As the longtime admin of a horror-themed social media page or pages with more than half a million followers and an admin that reads almost every comment and DM and puts a lot of care into what happens there, I can tell you that over the years, I have seen hundreds of comments about Maximum Overdrive that have all kind of been something to the effect of, I know this movie is kind of goofy in parts, but it really scared me as a kid or really got to me and I remember it when I how it scared me when I watch it now. So, scary check. Memorable check. Surprising? Have you ever seen a combined soda machine and steamroller attack in a movie before? Nope. Surprising check. Entertaining? Oh, my God. So is Maximum Overdrive bad? As Marissa Tomei's character in My Cousin Vinny would say about Stephen King thinking it's bad, the defense is wrong. It's not bad. It's a mess. It's a four out of four on the mess scale. And that means it's awesome. So let's take up our first bad but interesting horror movie an absurd film from 1994 called Wolf. There is so much talent packed into this failure of a movie. I I can't think of another horror movie this loaded with spectacular, gifted, just, I mean, directors, crew, cast. The only one that, really jumps to mind as i'm talking about this might be red dragon but i think this one eclipses it just in terms of scale this is a movie made by mike nichols who i consider one of the most intelligent people to ever lend their gifts to hollywood a person who made the graduate and who's afraid of virginia wolf on top of just a pile of other great films And this movie stars Jack Nicholson, Michelle Pfeiffer, James Spader, Christopher Plummer, Richard Jenkins. I mean, it's got Niles from Frasier, David Hyde Pierce. It's got David Schwimmer from Friends. It's got Allison Janney, it's got Oz Perkins, the director of Blackcoat's Daughter is in this movie. And on top of all that, this movie was co-written by Jim Harrison, who when you search him online discover that for a period of time he was called the greatest living American novelist. And I just want to take a brief detour here to remark on how incredible Richard Jenkins' career has been. It wasn't until I saw his face and started, like, thinking back to what I've seen him in. This is a person who's done Cabin in the Woods, Six Feet Under, Let Me In, which is a remarkable remake of one of the greatest modern horror films, Let the Right One In. He's in Shape of Water. I mean, unbelievable talent. So let's run our mess scale on Wolf. Is it memorable? Not really. It's memorable in parts. And I have a lot of affection for this movie. So this is not like a total hit on Wolf. I've seen it a few times. There And there's something really charming and interesting about it. That's why it's here. But it's bad. <laughs> like, it's memorable in moments. But overall... I, I, not so much. I mean, I even if you've seen this movie multiple times, like I have, I dare you without looking up to just cold think about the whole publishing plot of this movie and see what you remember of it and what the relation of the characters are to each other. Who's related to who? Who's friends with who? Who's coworkers with who? Um, I, I mean, I've seen this a few times and I don't remember almost any of that stuff. And most criminal for a werewolf movie, I actually don't even remember the transformation scenes. I just remember what Jack Nicholson looks like as a werewolf or wolf man, really, or wolf Jack, really. So for memorability, out of a full point of one, I'm going to give it a point two five. Is it entertaining? Uh, yes, it's definitely entertaining strangely entertaining. So I'm going to go ahead and give it a full point there. Is it surprising? Absolutely not. The only surprising thing in this movie is that Jack Nicholson pisses all over James Spader in every other way. It kind of just takes the mildest cliche route for the werewolf story that you could possibly imagine, it's literally doing the same thing that Lon Chaney's Wolfman did with the you've got to restrain me to a chair. Except for in this case, Jack Nicholson gets handcuffed to a he handcuffs himself to a radiator and then gets freed and re handcuffed like, by Michelle Pfeiffer in a kink style. Jack Nicholson's werewolf powers aren't that impressive. His, his werewolf powers Breaking down his inhibitions actually makes him a far more ferocious book publisher. I just want you to think of that sentence I just said again (laughs) to think about how insane this movie is. So, I again, I'm going to give it like, I don't even, I think 0.25 is even generous on the surprising scale. But that's fine. We'll give it to it. And then scary minus one. We're actually going backwards here. <laughs> We're going into negative integers because w- weirdly, the only scary moment in this movie to me is when James Spader starts to turn. And he's not scary as a werewolf either. This movie really botches the whole werewolf thing all the way through. But when he's starting to turn, there's a scene where he confronts Michelle Pfeiffer in a police station. And he is really ominous and off-putting in those moments. Not that big a surprise for James Spader. But that's kind of it. And that's not nearly enough for a horror movie. So on the mess scale out of a possible four points, I'm giving Wolf 0.5. Now, again, it's better. It's a better movie than that, right? I would not be rating this movie like 5% on Rotten Tomatoes if I was an aggregate of critics. As a horror movie though, it's a disaster. That means we got to dig out what's really interesting and special in here. And besides the amazing amount of talent that went down into this uh, Hindenburg of a film, it's also the fact that I think it's the ideas that sunk this movie. I think it's a, the disrespect that the makers of this movie had for the horror genre that really screwed this up for them. Jim Harrison, the writer of this movie was a huge naturalist, like a big um, advocate for the outdoors. And clearly there's a message in this movie that um, humans have lost touch with their primal nature. And we're, inside with jobs that are completely foreign to what we evolved from, where, I mean, literally book publishing (laughs) is a cartoonish version of how meek and uh, you have to be to succeed in a job like that, which is what Jack Nicholson's character's problem is, or at least this is the caricature version of it. I mean, it's basically Jacqueline Hyde if you're rooting for Hyde. <laughs> and there's a little bit of Lord of the Flies going on here too. I mean, that <laughs> incredible scene where Jack Nicholson turns the tables on James Spader, gets him fired from the job that James Spader was trying to get Jack Nicholson fired from. Jack Nicholson gets the jobs ba- job back. Gets James Spader removed from the company, and when he breaks the news to him in a bathroom, <laughs> takes a uh, takes a piss on him, and then as James Spader backs up, appalled, he's like, "What's wrong with you? Are you crazy?" Or forget what he exactly says there. And Jack Nicholson basically says, "What? I'm marking my territory," and this is really telling us that it won't take very long, no matter how evolved. Uh, people feel or how polished things get, in in the blink of an eye, everything can slip back to savage. And this is not a super original idea on this movie's part. A lot of this is in Lon Chaney's Wolfman. When you think of his elegant cane and you think of the problematic use of Roma people in that movie and you think of the Talbot heritage and the estates and how it's played. The civilization versus things going crazy motif is already there. (laughs) This movie isn't really advancing that very much, if at all, but it thinks it is. The problem with Wolf is that's all that it cares about. It does not care about the horror genre at all. It's basically renting space in the genre and then packing up and leaving as soon as the movie ends as quick as they can like they're trying to get out of the neighborhood and that is a very disappointing misuse of the talents of jack nicholson clearly and michelle pfeiffer who was one of the most forbidding characters in any superhero film ever and james spader who, who might actually be what they were looking for in real life. Who knows? Seems like it a bit. Fascinatingly, I feel like the m- mirror image or photo negative of this is David Cronenberg, who seems to succeed when he does genre films and seems to not really connect when he doesn't. So what do I mean by that? So in this, in Wolf, Mike Nichols, who was great at like masterpiece dramas, mainstream stuff, very subversive underneath because he's incredibly smart and guy had a really restless, rebellious mind, but not for horror <laughs> I, I suspect. but he would do those kind of films like The Graduate and then when he comes over here into the horror field, he feels totally lost. David Kornenberg was in the horror field and then when he got out of the horror field, Had really great movies, but in other genre styles like Eastern Promises, which is my favorite of his non-horror films or History of Violence or whatever, which are basically thrillers. But then when he goes to make his Mike Nichols movies, so to speak, when he does a movie like A Dangerous Method, which is a study of psychoanalysis, or he does a movie like Maps to the Stars, which is his kind of dark take on Hollywood, his version of Robert Altman's The Player, or when he does Cosmopolis, which is kind of Cronenberg's Oliver Stone film, I don't feel like any of those really worked that well. So probably for the same reasons that Mike Nichols couldn't do horror, Cronenberg, when he strays out of genre, finds himself similarly at sea. Wolf is basically trying to weld together romance and horror. And for all his flaws, whether you love him or hate him or love some of his stuff or, you know, hate some of his stuff. The one thing you can't say about Tim Burton is when he tries to weld those subjects together, he does honor to both sides of it. He is definitely honoring the horror elements fail or succeed he knows how to handle them he feels enthusiasm and deep understanding for them and in this movie i feel like mike nichols was kind of playing tim burton for a day and that just doesn't work so wolf is bad on the mess scale it's better as a film but the interesting thing we dig out of this besides the fact that never has so much talent uh, come over into the horror field and left with nothing to show for it virtually. But the real special, interesting thing here is that it's a movie that was conquered by its own ideas. It's, it's focus on the message. Part of the movie is the fail A, a, a great, like the shining, whether you love that one or hate that one, right? Like, And I suspect if you hate it, a lot of that is loyalty to the book. So let's set that aside for a second. But just in terms of its impact and legacy, what The Shining is doing is showing you things like um, toxicity and a descent into madness and not being able to tell real from fantasy, et cetera. But it's not messaging those things at you. <laughs> It's telling a great story and the message is also there with Wolf. The priority went way too far on the message side and the ideas brought the whole thing down. And that's really interesting to me because I can't think off the top of my head of a horror movie that that happened to on a similar scale. That's what kind of makes this unique to me. Other ones might come or you might be able to tell me some. And if so, please uh, message me on the Horror Weekly Facebook page or through the Instagram. But um, it's usually the opposite, right? With horror movies, they're focused way on the entertainment factor or let's be honest, also sometimes the money making factor and the message part of it is the really minor part if it's there at all <laughs> like they don't care but so take Blair Witch Project for example which was a you know famously profitable film um, there are messages in there and I'm sure you could have really interesting discussions about what those messages are but I sure as hell didn't walk away from my first viewing of Blair Witch Project Thinking about the message of that movie, what I thought about was the style of the movie, right? The message would come way later. <laughs> Wolf is not like that. If you're at a train tracks in your car and the signs come down and the alarm bell is ringing and then the train starts to go by, you're going to watch 30 cars in the front of that train go by all with the label message on them before you get to anything else labeled differently with the Wolf train. And to me, that's what's interesting and also deadly about it. Okay, we're not going to spend much time on our next bad but interesting movie, which is 2009's The Unborn. But what's interesting about this is going to be pretty easily covered in just a few words. Or maybe just one word or name in particular. But you'll see that in a second. And it's pretty unique in horror movie history. So I think it's worth at least a mention. The Unborn has a pretty good cast. It's Gary Oldman. Idris Elba, and Odette Annabelle, who does a pretty good job in this. And although some of the special effects of The Unborn are pretty terrible, there are some that are good or at least surprisingly creepy. The plot of this movie takes a wildly ambitious swing, which I think it mostly fails on. But I do have to admire and respect a movie that has as crazy a take as a main plot as this movie is going to turn out to be, especially for a relatively low-budget movie. It also has a really good exorcism scene. Um One of the better exorcism scenes of the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, certainly better than anything in the recent The Pope's Exorcist. In terms of the exorcism scene, nothing in The Unborn is better than Russell Crowe on a Vespa. (laughs) And on top of all this, The Unborn is directed by David S. Goyer, who was involved mainly in the writing capacity with the Blade trilogy, the Dark Knight trilogy, and Man of Steel, among a lot else. So when you put all those elements together and then find out that The Unborn, last I checked, was like 6%, on Rotten Tomatoes, and as far as I can tell, is either loathed or completely forgotten by horror fans in general. It's kind of astounding that this movie ended up with that outcome. And why did that happen? I mean, this movie is way lower rated on Rotten Tomatoes than Leprechaun 2 (laughs) Back to the Hood. So how did Gary Oldman (laughs) lose to a Leprechaun with a bong? I think there's a one-word explanation to this, and that word is Jumbie. Yes, you heard me right. Jumbie. They named the villain of the unborn Jumbie. This is the demon in this movie they want us to take seriously. And if they hadn't fucked the naming of their character up so badly... I think this movie would be getting occasional articles from Fangoria or Rumorg saying we should reappraise this movie. It deserves a little more. It would start to get some of the traction that movies like Valentine or House of Wax remake get. But no, they went with this ridiculous moniker and crushed their own movie's fortunes. The Unborn even ends with a tease like this is going to turn into a franchise. It ends pretty similarly to like House of the Devil. And the last line floating ominously at the audience is Jumbie wants to be born to which the audience replied, no thanks. But I can't recall another horror movie being so harmed. By the naming of its own villain. Clearly, there are, this is not a quality comparison here, but it makes me wonder what would happen, what would have happened to like Nightmare on Elm Street if they, instead of naming the character Freddy Krueger, they named him like Frank Scaremare. <laughs> Speaking of badly named horror villains, our next bad but interesting movie is 2003's Bloody Murder 2. Closing Camp, starring Katie Woodruff and Tiffany sheppis A summer camp slasher franchise featuring a villain named Trevor Morehouse. Closing Camp is the sequel to a complete Friday the 13th <laughs> ripoff from 2000 called Bloody Murder. Both these movies are written by John R. Stevenson, although the second movie, Closing Camp, is directed by Rob Sparrow. You may find this hard to believe, but there's two interesting things going on with this bad uh, Closing Camp sequel. Um, first of all, this franchise is known, if it's known at all, for taking Jason's hockey mask and trying to use it on the covers of their posters and DVDs, etc., And apparently they got some kind of message from above saying you can't use these in the movies. So in the films themselves, Trevor Morehouse is wearing a valentine mask and also clad in overalls. And absolutely none of this should work, let's be clear. But although the original Bloody Murder is bad, like mystery science theater riff tracks level bad... I kind of like Bloody Murder 2. It's not wonderful, but it's fun. It's got really good effects, especially in the kill scenes from Todd Masters, who also did effects on Slither and Leprechaun 2 and the Belko experiment. But let's get to the interesting, dare I say fascinating things about Closing Camp. So first of all, this movie is Ripping off the summer camp slasher um, motif as hard as it can. And because it lands in 2003 and because there's been a lack of really good summer camp slashers with all the fighting over the rights with Friday the 13th and Sleepaway Camp grinding to a halt, etc. Um, it kind of is like this weird oasis for people craving that feeling. I'm sure there's other examples I'm forgetting now, but I have to go all the way up to 2015 to the final girls, the summer camp slasher parody to remember that feeling and enjoying that feeling as hard as I would have got from closing camp. But there's so much in here that comes off like if you asked an AI generator to develop a Friday the 13th, the camp is called Camp Placid Pines. It's got a dare game the teens play at night around the campfire called Bloody Murder, which comes off like a TikTok challenge. The villain himself has a completely ridiculous backstory of revenge. Because Closing Camp is eight years after the original Scream, it even gets kind of meta. But here's the fascinating part, and I don't think this has ever been done in a slasher franchise that I can think of. Trevor Morehouse, spoilers, Trevor Morehouse is not actually the killer in either of these movies until the very, very end of the second film. So he's a legend, and someone you think is Trevor Morehouse or who looks like Trevor Morehouse is doing all of the slashing as you're watching the films. But what you discover at the end of closing camp is that it's been Trevor Morehouse's father the whole time, if I understand the plot, and I didn't pay that much attention to Bloody Murder One. But it looks like it's just the father responsible for all of the killings, except for his own death at the end of Closing Camp. That, that means that we have um, the emergence of the real Trevor Morehouse the real slasher villain in the last seconds of the last real entry of this franchise. And there were spinoffs and, you know, stuff in the future, but it's not really the body of the franchise. So it would be like, imagine if Jason Voorhees didn't kill anyone at all until like the end of Friday three for the very last murder. And then the Friday 13 series ended It's super bizarre, but that's what makes it so fascinating to me because it turns out the recipe, the the structure of a teen summer camp slasher is so strong in horror terms that you can have a terribly named villain. You can have a completely ineffective villain look. You can have the villain actually not be the killer at all. You can have it go direct to video. You can have it pretty badly written most of the time. And after all that, at least in the sequel to me... If you have some really good acting and, and Katie Woodruff is pretty good for what she's been asked to do, but Tiffany Sheppies is, is incredible on in this. She was wonderful in Nightmare Man and a lot of other stuff. She's a really good actor. So if you have some good acting, you have people doing effects who know what they're doing, um, and you bury it in a summer camp slasher structure, you can have a really, really watchable, fun movie and it does not work like that for most other horror genres if you have a creature feature and you tease the creature like Spielberg did with Jaws um, you can get away for that with that for so long but either you never reveal the creature in which case the audience walks away mostly disappointed or when it comes time for the big reveal the creature's got to look good and if you drop the ball on that the movie's not going to work. If you have a whodunit kind of horror movie like the Scream franchise and it comes time for the reveal of the killer or killers and the reveal is incredibly stupid, again, it's really going to damage the movie. But I think what Closing Camp reveals is that there are some horror subgenres where all you have to do is get a couple of the nuts and bolts right And the plane will fly. And I think the other fascinating thing about Bloody Murder 2 is it introduces a supernatural-esque touch of having the main character, Tracy, have visions of her dead brother from Bloody Murder 1. And Trevor Morehouse, as far as we know, is not supernatural. He's just the son of the sheriff. It turns out who knows where the franchise would have gone, but because they introduced a supernatural element in the slasher summer camp slasher uh, milieu, it really makes it feel like that's an element that adds an extravagant amount of fun somehow to the whole idea of the slasher. So Eden Lake is a really, really good slasher. Very, very well done. A hundred times better than Closing Camp. But because it's entirely non-supernatural, it comes off as a different kind of thing. And Closing Camp, because it added that little dash of supernatural into the recipe, I think shows that that's a very special quality to add to this kind of movie, even if the supernatural element wasn't even added to the killer. <laughs> so, Bloody Murder <Mar-2> 2 Closing Camp <laughs> screws up a lot of things, but because its heart is in the right place and because it does pass the mess scale <laughs> for me. So, memorable. Um, yeah, I give it like a 0.5 again, entertaining. I think it's like a 0.75 surprising. Um, this is a relative score. (laughs) I'm going to give it here, but I'm going to give it a full one only because it's incredibly surprising if you've seen the original bloody murder, which is, 50 times worse than the sequel. It's kind of what happened with like the Ouija franchise, for example. And then scary. It's, it's okay. It's again, it's a 0.5. So it did enough on the mess scale, even though it's not a great movie to really become bad. Yes, but interesting. Okay, our next bad but interesting horror movie is 2021's We're All Going to the World's Fair. I give this a 1.5 elephant ears out of four on the mess slash fair scale. And to be honest, I like this movie. I think it's pretty good in parts. It just can't go anywhere on the mess scale because it's not any of the four elements. It's not really memorable overall, just in parts and moments. It's not entertaining (laughs) so much over the stretch of its runtime. It's not surprising. I kind of knew what was happening or what was going to happen the whole way. I just didn't know how it was going to be executed. And it's not scary, although this might be the most interesting element of it because it has one really scary image. It's this movie's version of Mike standing in the corner at the end of Blair Witch Project. In this one, it's Casey waking up in the middle of the night. Maybe, you know, well, <laughs> no, <laughs> we'll get to the spoilers in a second. But anyway, staring into the distance with a really creepy smile. It's a very unsettling and effectively done uh, image the the really interesting part about the scary element here is the plot of this movie is basically the the world's fair, going to the world's fair is like a challenge it's like an internet challenge and what it turns out to be is a really large multiplayer role playing horror game and what we're exposed to in this movie are basically just two characters <laughs> And it's Casey who's, you know, starts playing the game. We meet her at the beginning of the movie, taking the World's Fair Challenge. And then JLB, uh, a middle aged, really lonely person who it has someone lingering around him at times in his house, but we never meet them. Just like we never meet Casey's parents uh, or dad or whoever's there, but just. Um, sort of hear them so this movie's really focused on these two characters they're playing this horror game there are other people uploading videos of them taking the world's fair challenge and going through like weird and unexpected changes and horrible things befalling them i mean that's the game but jlb is getting more and more creeped out and frightened it seems for Casey with every video that she uploads. So the weird part of this is the movie itself is not that scary, but the movie is scary to one of its own characters. And sure, you're thinking, well, that's not profound. (laughs) The characters in horror movies are supposed to be scared. And that's right. But the only really big plot, twist in this entire film as far as I can tell if I'm reading it right is that JLB becomes scared so the fact that the entire movie turns on whether the horror game will eventually terrify this person or not and he does get terrified um, is an important thing to mention but although the movie itself is not that frightening so what is the special or singularly interesting thing about we're all going to the world's fair It's really authentic to at least recent internet culture in a way that almost no films for the last five years or so have been. And this has been on my mind because of a weird thing I recently read that said that Large language model AIs, they're known as LLMs, that's what ChatGPT is, are starting to poison themselves with something known as synthetic data. So things like ChatGPT are basically trained on the entire internet, or at least as much of the internet they can grab hold of. They scrape the internet, and you might think they're just scraping for words, but increasingly they're increasing uh, scraping for images, they're scraping for sounds. And sounds include things that are vocally said, including what's said on podcasts. So we're training uh, future chat GPTs right now as we speak on the Horror Weekly podcast. And they, they're they given this whole internet set of data, everything that's written and said and and shown in images, because they need all of that data to give us, the people doing the asking, the best answers. They need to be trained on high quality data. That means actual humans saying and creating and doing actual things. So if you think back to the year 2021, for example, almost the entire internet was that, right? Like there's some bot activity, but it's, it was mostly to a huge extent entirely. The things that humans were putting onto the internet. But now so much of the content that's starting to appear online is coming from AI itself. That means that when LLMs scrape the internet in like 2024, let's say they're going to get 20% of the internet back that that's fed into them is from AI. And that's what's known as synthetic data. (laughs) So as a metaphor to explain why this would be a bad idea, imagine taking someone who's training to be a stand-up comedian who's like young and trying to break through and training them on like the same 30 jokes told slightly different ways over and over again. The more homogenous or the same things get, the less creative you can get training off of it. But the really interesting thing about that whole story I just told you is the implications of it. So what that means is that the data backwards, retro data, like a a full picture slice of the Internet in 2019, that data is going to get more and more valuable. So like the stuff you were posting to your social media networks and the things that you were blogging about, uh, you know, four years ago, because it's AI free, is going to get more and more valuable over time as the internet gets more and more corrupted. That's right. Someday Microsoft is going to pay like $50,000 for all of your Facebook posts from 2014 And I think this is what's really uniquely interesting about we're all going to the World's Fair. It's going to get more valuable as time goes on because it really captures a moment of our time now. It'll be a pure data point of what it felt like to be online in our time and the surrounding years, both forwards and backwards. And, you know, other movies do this. That um, Zoom horror movie that came out, I think from Shudder, or at least that's where I saw it, called Host, is a really good snapshot of what it felt like um, at some point in the beginning of the pandemic, like full force... Toilet paper is gone. You're wiping down your groceries with sanitary wipes. That point of the pandemic host really kind of captures that, but it captures a very, very brief moment of time. I mean, that was only a couple months at the beginning of this thing. And it was the feeling for it was already changing as it kind of moved on. We're all going to the World's Fair could end up representing a five year block of time or maybe even a decade. Who knows? And A24 and the studios that are cap, uh, you know, copycatting A24, they've been trying to sell us the idea that the topic of our age when it comes to horror movies is trauma. There's even this hilarious meme that came out. I forget if it preceded the release of Halloween kills or Halloween ends. Uh, But it was a a super cut of Jamie Lee Curtis saying, being asked in interviews, what the Halloween franchise was about now and heard saying some variants of it's about trauma over and over like a hundred different times. And sure, the most important topic of this era of horror could be a trauma. I mean, who am I to say? But I don't think it is it it strikes me as wrong to say that trauma is the topic of our age because trauma is just downstream from whatever causes trauma <laughs> Right, so like a lot of the disfigurement and body horror that was buried in classic horror movies from the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties was a reaction to wounded soldiers coming home from World War One and the whole horror of the war to end all wars, and having to you know grapple with uh, humanity doing that to itself uh, in in front of your very eyes in a way that couldn't be hidden. And that was trauma, obviously. The wholesale, the wholesale slaughter of teenagers in 1980s horror movies was partially uh, our culture anticipating that it was going to be harder and harder to have a better life than your parents, that there was less and less f- value felt or the time That magic time of being a teenager was getting encroached upon more and more and was going to have less and less value. That's also trauma. I mean, Godzilla is atomic trauma for Japan. I don't think you can really say trauma is the distinguishing topic of an era and a horror when it's kind of all the eras are dealing with it under different names, right? You have to dig a little bit deeper. And I think when you dig into uh, our important subjects of our era of horror now, recently, and to come, I don't think trauma is the right way to put it. I think there's really two important elements to what horror movies are going to be you know thinking through in, in as much as they bother to do so uh, purposefully or accidentally in the next few years and the two things i think they are are isolation and weariness or in this horrifying term that's getting more and more popular recently hyper fatigue and for all we're all going to the world fair's flaws are and it's a flawed movie it is particularly excellent on these two what i think are the most important points of our age of horror it's amazing dealing with the feeling and implications and uh what you know what it happens to a person when they're uh, drowning in isolation. And I think it's also particularly good at displaying the corrosive nature of hyper fatigue on people. And there's another really interesting thing about this movie, which is its ending. So uh, basically, when uh, JLB confronts Casey and says, we need to go out of game, I need to ask you a question. And she allows him to do that. He asks her if she's okay. He asks her if, um, these videos that she's uploading, if she's in mortal danger, if she's a threat to herself, or she, there's something, uh, you know, around her or possessing her that is a threat to her. And the way the movie plays out, she responds to this question by, mocking him saying I can't believe you really believe that the horror game is real and then cutting him off completely and then in her last I think it's Skype message to him saying don't call me again you're a pedophile so that escalated quickly but I think everything Casey is saying is true I think JLB let her down in, in this exchange in multiple ways. One, he said he was thinking about reporting her videos and calling the cops, which she immediately has an aversion to. But not only did his imagination fail to keep up with the horror game, and now he's become useless to her because now that he's broken out of the game, where's she gonna go as a, as a creator, right? She's creating these incredibly twisted short videos. But if she knows that if she if it goes too far or something happens, all of a sudden she's going to end up with police at her door um, called on her by her own collaborator. So the game can't continue. So cutting him off from that point makes sense. But it's also incredibly creepy that he's spending all this time obsessing about what's happening with this one young girl. He's a middle aged guy. And he barely knows her. And he never even shows her his real face over Skype. She is seen on the videos. She's taking the risks. He's hiding in complete anonymity. He doesn't even reveal his full name, although hilariously, right at the end when Casey cuts him off, the very last thing she says to him is he goes, Casey. And she goes, that's not my real name. (laughs) Hangs up forever. So I love that that's the note that it ends on. But it actually doesn't end, and there because the movie has, I think, like a full 10 minutes to go after Casey pulls the plug on this um, collaboration, so to speak. And the, we spend the entire rest of the movie with JLB in a panic, trying to recontact Casey, pacing around his house, clearly upset that he's out of the game and looking lonely, staring into the distance, doing all kind of weird stuff. And then, as we return to him, he claims, in the way the movie is going to end, he tells us a story. And the story is that after a year, Casey felt bad. She recontacted him. They got together and met, you know, who knows, like in New York. I can't remember where. Um, they had, like, a lunch date. She apologized to him. Uh, a whole bunch of corny and, I think, clearly not real stuff. And then the movie just ends on a shot of him looking at us or looking down depressed after he relates this, you know, revision of the Casey ending. And, I, I, you know, there's a possibility that what he's saying is true. But I read his story as complete bullshit. <laughs> I think it's is his in-game fantasy. And I think... What happens here, the most important thing and interesting thing that happens here is that Casey was getting better and better at the horror game and JLB clearly got worse. So imagine if if you followed all this, if you've seen all, you know, World's Fair and you kind of understand what I'm talking about at this point. If you haven't, go watch it and then, and see if this makes sense to you. Uh, you know, what really happens here, the thought experiment to do is, is Casey doing another horror game somewhere else under a different name and can't be seen by JLB? And if she is, what does that game look like? And I think what it looks like is just better versions or more interesting versions of the videos we've already seen her do. So she has evolved. Her skill has evolved. Who knows? She might actually become the kind of person that would make a movie like We're All Going to the World's Fair. What has JLB done? Well, if my interpretation is right, and this story that he tells us at the end of the movie is his new version of the game, it's fucking terrible. First of all, there's no video. There's no creativity. He's not doing the things that Casey's doing. He's just talking. And then second of all, it's the most cliched, like, I mean, it could be the end of when Harry met Sally or something, right? We met up. We, you know, had a deep exchange with, you, with each other. There's this big age difference, so it's not meant to be. But, you know, we left each other with mutual respect, right? And if that had happened, he would look super happy at the end and fulfilled at the end of the movie. But he looks like mortally depressed, right? So I think what's happened here is Casey – has used what's happened, the events of this movie, to get better at what she does. And JLB not only didn't get better, he didn't even stay the same. He got worse. And I guess the most charitable interpretation of JLB's behavior is that he snapped, that he's now insane, and he believes this really happened, even though it didn't. And if that's the case, then the conclusion of World's Fair is just a really quiet version of the the UK ending. Of the movie *The Descent*, where um, Sarah is imagining that she has gotten free from the events of the descent and is, you know, happily celebrating a birthday, and what's actually happened is that she's trapped forever, buried in a cave surrounded by crawlers. So JLB is imagining that this all worked out well for him and that he um had a good ending to this game but that's his insane self-defense from how pathetic this all ended up for him and Sarah is imagining that she's not lost forever and they're both like insane defense mechanisms it also feels very similar to the very ending of the Black Mirror episode USS Callister when Uh, The humans who got injected into a video game finally vanquish their uh, enemy, the person who put them in there, but now they're stuck in the video game and they come across the first gamer in the game and the gamer basically treats them like he's a space pirate, chases them away and they flee and then he's left alone and sighing saying, you better run, I'm the king of space. And then there's just no one around, right? That loneliness at the end and that loss of a chance. He could have talked, that gamer in USS Callister could have talked to the first human beings in history to ever really get inserted into a video game. And instead, he chased them away because they weren't willing to trade, like, you know, 500 gold space bars with him or something. And now he's just all alone, alone, just as badly alone as JLB is at the end of World's Fair. So, again, World's Fair isn't bad as a movie. Anna Cobb is actually spectacular in it. And I think the director is really skilled. It just feels like the kind of movie that was born to be a documentary and somehow got turned into a feature length fictional horror film, but whatever, it's pretty good. It's just bad on the mess scale. So it's bad as a horror movie to me, but it's going to have a very interesting place in the horror genre that might get bigger and bigger as time goes on because of how well it handled. Some very, very important elements of what makes horror movies feel early to mid 2020s. And it has a really interesting message, even if the movie just barely is whispering that message to you as the credits roll. I would love to know what movies, horror movies you find, or movies, whatever, you find bad but interesting. Not bad but fun um <laughs> uh, not, not like plan nine from outer space i mean it could be but you, there have to be something interesting to it right um not bad movies that you enjoy but mad bad movies that still did something so good inside of them that despite the fact that there's badness around them they're still a delicious treat somehow in you know intellectually right so let us know at the horror weekly either facebook page or the instagram page the facebook is just horror weekly the instagram is horror weekly pod also uh we're just about to launch uh on the new platform called threads so threads is the twitter alternative that is being launched out of Instagram. So I would love for you to seek and find us there once you make a Threads account. It's going to be really interesting, and we're definitely going to be spending a lot of time there, and we're definitely going to be getting into a lot of discussions there because it's supposed to be a very verbal platform. Less, It's like Twitter, right? So join us there if you can. Also, just real quick, we've determined our new review and rating goal. So it's not about numbers this time. It turns out that the average horror podcast is rated 4.5 on Apple and Spotify. We're sitting at 4.7 right now. That's great. But we are just a couple reviews away from 4.8. That's out of five. And for every little notch that you go up, um, you get treated better as a podcast and, and <laughs> I, I can't, like, it's uh, not really about the competing with other entities or whatever. It's more about the fact that there's gotta be, we're doing it for the fun of it, actually. But when you're that close to it getting a little bit easier to be discovered, you just want to get there. So if you haven't given a rating yet and you could get us over the top, uh, we would deeply appreciate it. That's it. We're recording this on the 4th of July. So I hope you had a amazing holiday and we will see you next Wednesday. Until then, have a great Horror Week.